Habakkuk chapter 1, and we're going to commence to read at verse 1, please. Let's hear God's word tonight. It says, The burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see, O Lord, how long shall I cry, and thou will not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence, and thou will not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity, and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. Behold ye among the heathen, and regard and wonder marvelously. For I will work a work in your days, which you will not believe, though it be told you. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. They are terrible and dreadful. Their judgment and their dignity shall proceed of themselves. Their horses also are swifter than the leopards and are more fierce than the evening wolves. And their horsemen shall spread themselves. And their horsemen shall come from far. They shall fly as the eagle that hasteth to eat. They shall come all for violence. Their faces shall sup up as the east wind. And they shall gather the captivity as the sand. And they shall scoff at the kings. And the princes shall be a scorn unto them. They shall deride every stronghold, for they shall heap dust and take it. Then shall his mind change, and he shall pass over and offend, imputing to his power unto his God. Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment, and O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth the man that is more righteous than he, and makest men as the fishes of the sea, as the creeping things that have no ruler over them. They, shall, they take up all of them with an angle. They catch them in their net and gather them in their drag." Therefore they rejoice and are glad. Therefore they sacrifice unto their net, and burn incense unto their drag, because by them their portion is fat, and their meat plenteous. Shall they therefore empty their net, and not spur continually to slay the nations? May God write that word upon our hearts tonight, in public reading of the Scriptures. We're going to focus just upon a few verses here in this wonderful prophecy. But before we do that, we'll just seek the Lord briefly in a moment's prayer. Let's ask for his help. As we've read the word of God, we all need his help now as I seek to deliver that word. So let's pray. Our Father and our God, again, we just do still ourselves now in thy most holy presence. We thank thee, Lord, for the public reading of the scriptures tonight. Thank thee, Lord, that we can come to books like this, written many years ago, yet, and yet they're still as relevant today for us. And we pray tonight as we come and look at some of these verses, Lord, as we see the situation that Habakkuk was living in, oh Lord, may we be able even to, to see it in our day as well. May we be able to relate to it, may we be able to apply it to our own hearts tonight. Oh Lord, we pray tonight above all that Christ will be glorified, that he will be uplifted and he will be honored tonight. We will see Jesus above all else, that will be my prayer. And therefore I pray now you would empty me of self and sin that you would fill me afresh with thy Holy Ghost. Lord, I cannot do it of my own will. I cannot do it of my own ability. Lord, I need you to come and to help. 
And I pray, Lord, therefore to that end that you will fill me afresh, Lord. And even for the people who have gathered tonight, the people who are listening in as well, Lord, may their hearts be prepared to hear thy word and to receive it. And, O Lord, may it be that word and season for us all. So answer prayer tonight and be with us. In Jesus' most worthy name we ask those things. Amen. Knowledge is power. That phrase is believed to have been first used in 1597 by a man called Sir Francis Bacon. And 426 years have passed since that statement was made. But I think it's still as relevant today as it was there in 1597. And I say that because you don't need to look too far into our past history to see that that is true in so many instances. Look back to World War II of the USA of Nazi Germany, seeking after knowledge of a nuclear nature. What was termed the Manhattan Project, the race was on to develop the necessary knowledge to develop the first atomic bomb. You move into the 1950s, into the 1970s, you have the famous space race. And again, you have the USA there involved. Them along with the USSR, or modern-day Russia, seeking to achieve the superior knowledge in spaceflight. And today it's no different because where there is knowledge, there is that seeking for power. Scientists today, they're gripped with the knowledge of trying to harness the energy of the sun. They're trying to solve the energy crisis through mad-made efforts. You see, that little ball in the sky that we see in Northern Ireland every now and again, it is the ultimate source of our energy. We need that for everything in life. We need it for the plants to grow. We need it for the water. We need it. It controls the tides, all of those things along with the moon. It's called nuclear fusion. And scientists believe it will revolutionize the way in which we produce energy. It's going to solve our energy crisis. And those are just a few examples tonight that highlight that that statement still rings true, that knowledge is power. And there's one thing tonight that man cannot or does not have a perfect knowledge of. And it is the answer to the question, why? Because maybe you have children tonight and your children, they like to do things, don't they, that they shouldn't be doing. And you'll go and you'll ask them, well, why did you do that? You know you shouldn't be doing those things. And very often the answer that comes back is this, well, mommy or daddy, I don't know why I did it. But you know, parents, they're not really much better tonight as well because your child will come to you and they'll say, well, why can't I do that thing? The response comes back, well, because I said so. I'm your parent and you don't need to know why. Neither of these responses tonight, they give us a satisfactory answer. In fact, all they do is leave you more frustrated than you started. And in this question, why, it can also make its way into Christian thinking as well. And I say that because when often we're faced with a difficult situation, some trial comes into our life and we can't understand it. At times we begin to ask the Lord, why? Well, Lord, why do you allow that thing to happen? Why was it necessary for this to happen? Why didn't you intervene and help there? You read through tonight the books of Job and Jeremiah. You think of their lives, and I'm sure they would have asked on multiple occasions, Lord, why? You look through the Psalms, and time after time, he's the psalmist crying out, Lord, why? And very often, whenever you read the Word of God, we don't really get that answer that we're expecting. We take that perceived silence, and we find it difficult to accept at times. And you know, that certainly was true here in Habakkuk's life as well. He had many questions. He looked around at the land he was living in. He was perplexed by it. He was confounded by it. He couldn't understand what was happening. 
And really that's the thrust of what we read here in Habakkuk chapter 1 verses 2, 3 and 4. See in those verses Habakkuk seemed to be asking a series of questions. And in that instance it's not only a question of why but he begins there in verse 2. He says, how long? O Lord, how long shall I cry and thou will not hear? Even cry out unto thee of violence and thou will not save. Why dost thou show me iniquity? And cause me to behold grievance, for spoiling and violence are before me. And there are that raise up strife and contention. Therefore the law is slacked. And judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous. Therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. See, Habakkuk's words here in verses 2 down to 4, they form part of a prayer. They were a prayer that he offered up to God. And tonight I simply want to consider these three verses with you. Because I think they give us a blueprint tonight. There's something we can follow as we seek the Lord tonight in prayer. Subject I want to leave with you tonight, and I want us to consider together, it is what to do when we don't understand. What are we to do when we don't understand? And I want to leave three very simple thoughts with you tonight from these verses. First thing we see, it's what I call the reason behind Habakkuk's prayer. We have the reason behind his prayer because he finds himself writing the prophecy here in a time of great spiritual declension. King Josiah, that young boy, he had not long died. And with him came the death of his good reforms, his good laws. You see, the statement like father, like son, it certainly doesn't apply here. Because the one who would uh, succeed King Josiah was his son Jehoiakim. And he certainly didn't follow in his father's footsteps. In fact, he tried to undo all of the good reforms, all the laws that his father had brought in. He was leading the nation toward disaster. Jeremiah chapter 22 and verse 17, it details the type of man that he was. You see, Jeremiah, he was a contemporary of Habakkuk. They ministered at similar times. And in Jeremiah chapter 22 and verse 17, we read these words. But thine eyes and thine heart are not but for thy covetousness, and to shed innocent blood, and for oppression and for violence to do it. And Habakkuk could see this right before his eyes. He was distressed by the condition of the nation, and he felt he needed to pray about it. And as he prayed, he provides a detailed description of what the land was like. Because in verse 3, it says here that he calls it a place of iniquity. That word iniquity has many different meanings. It's a word that means to pant after something. It's to waste your strength. It's to go after things that are of no real value. No spiritual benefit whatsoever. But he also uses another word there. He talks about grievance. That word grievance, it gives the idea of a toiling. It's a laboring for nothing. The land was desolate. Wrongdoing all around them. People were making unjust gains. Describes those in the land as raising up strife, raising up contention. In other words, they were getting into brawls, getting into disputes, all manner of controversy. But look at verse 4, because we find the culmination of such behavior. He says, Therefore the law is slacked, and judgment doth never go forth. For the wicked doth compass about the righteous, therefore wrong judgment proceedeth. He's literally saying the law has grown grown numb here, it's grown cold. 
It's no longer in operation. Because had the law been operational, then things wouldn't be as they were. The righteous wouldn't be surrounded by the wicked, the sinful. People wouldn't be getting away with the things that they are. There'd be proper law and order. And I think the words of Judges chapter 21 and verse 25, they're appropriate words here. Every man did that which is right in his own eyes. It's been over 2,600 years since Habakkuk wrote this prophecy, and yet I believe we see something similar here in 2023 in Northern Ireland. Sin being celebrated at every opportunity. The land's rife with corruption, with violence, and by all accounts the wicked appear to be prospering at every turn. As we look around us tonight, we ought to be troubled. We ought to be concerned as believers You look at how this prophecy begins in verse 1. We're given an insight to how Habakkuk felt. He says the burden which Habakkuk the prophet did see, you see the behavior and the attitude around him and caused him to be burdened. Truly it weighed heavy upon this man. If you turn in your Bibles tonight to the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 9 please. Ezra chapter 9, because we have a similar response by that man. Ezra chapter 9, and we're going to read verses 5 and 6. Ezra chapter 9, and verses 5 and 6. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose up from my heaviness... And having rent my garment and my mantle, I fell upon my knees and spread out my hands unto the Lord my God, and said, O my God, I am ashamed, and blush to lift up my face to thee, my God, for our iniquities are increased over our head, and our trespass is grown up unto the heavens. Again, you find a man in heaviness, he's burdened by the behavior around him, so much so that in verse 6 we read he was ashamed. He was ashamed to lift his face to the Lord. And as Ezra looked around him, there was little to encourage him. And despite that, we find him here praying. He wasn't like many who said tonight, well, what's the point? Why should we pray? Because nobody else is praying. Nobody else seems to bother. Nobody cares what's happening. Our only response to those people tonight needs to be this. Well, if we don't pray tonight, then who's going to pray? Because it certainly won't be those who are happily living in sin tonight, who are only happy to see the world burn, only happy to see the decline in morality, in godliness, in righteousness. And surely we need to pray now more than we've ever needed to pray, particularly for our children. You think of our children, you think of our young people that are growing up now, and all of these things are being brought into schools, bring laws being passed, so much confusion around. We need to pray now more than we've ever prayed. What's the world going to be like in 20 or 30 years? This was the reason here behind Habakkuk's prayer. But the second thing I want you to see tonight is the request made in Habakkuk's prayer. We have the request made in his prayer because he could see everything that was happening around him. It caused him great concern, great confusion. He couldn't understand it. And he began to question the plan of God. Because in his eyes, the ungodly were committing sin at every turn and God was simply allowing it to happen. 
I find you can learn a lot from a person's name in the Bible. If you ever have time, you should study some of the names of the Bible because they often give a description of what that individual is like, their attitude, how they lived. And the name Habakkuk here, it means to embrace. It means to wrestle. And as you read through these three chapters, which I would encourage you to do, you'll find that this man does both things. Chapter 1, we find him wrestling here. He's struggling to come to terms with God's plan. But things change as you get into chapter 2. Because Habakkuk then, he's able to get himself to the place where he's trusting the Lord by faith. And those wonderful words, Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, but the just shall live by his faith, was the cry of the reformers. It was the cry of Habakkuk thousands of years before that. But the just shall live by his faith. Oh, how different a man we have here in Habakkuk chapter 2 to the one that we're considering tonight in chapter 1. He begins verse 2 by asking the Lord, how long? How long, Lord? And we only can assume when he asks that question, how long, that he must have been asking and asking and asking. This is not something that is recent. It's something that is over time. And maybe now frustration is beginning to creep in. And it's almost as if he's saying to the Lord here, well, how much longer am I going to have to pray, Lord? How much longer am I going to have to wait before you do something? But notice something else in verse 2, because it highlights the passion in his prayer. You'll notice the word cry is used twice. And the first cry, it's a cry for help. That's how we read it in the original language. But the second cry, it's a different Hebrew word. And that word cry, it is to scream. It's to shout with a loud voice. It's a heart that is so disturbed. Because Habakkuk was witnessing the violence, witnessing the iniquity that was going around him, and it greatly troubled him. Oh, how could God be so indifferent to all of those things? Why hadn't God intervened? And again, there's a danger of that sort of spirit creeping into our lives. We look around us at the rapid decline in society... Many of you tonight, older than I am, but I see it in my 30s. Those tonight, maybe in their 50s, their 60s, I'm sure you've seen a massive change in the last 20 or 30 years. People today have an ever-increasing apathy toward Christianity. Christian beliefs, Christian morals are being attacked. There's laws against abortion. People being arrested for preaching in the open air. You have the media constantly pushing the LGBT agenda. You may recall almost a year ago to this day, over there in Australia, there were seven rugby league players who were dragged through the tabloids because they didn't want to wear a jersey with a rainbow on it. It's not because they had a problem with that community, but it's because the message it portrayed, it differed from their religious and from their cultural beliefs. And these people, they were said they weren't inclusive, they were intolerant. And yet the way they were treated was anything but inclusive, it was exclusive. Because society today, it's a place of double standards. You can be anything that you want to be as long as it's not a Christian. Equal rights for everybody else when you take a stand for your faith. You're attacked, you're called intolerant, you're a bigot, you're homophobic. And we as Christians, we don't exclude, or we shouldn't exclude, because Christ never excluded. He didn't make a difference between those he healed, those he saved during his earthly ministry. He sat with publicans, he sat with sinners. Not here tonight on some hobby horse about the LGBT community, by the way, because I never would do that. It's not my platform. It's not my place. 
But I think that as Christians, sometimes we forget tonight that we have sin in our lives. We're sinners. And it's only by the mercy and the grace of God that we've been saved. And yes, we're right to disagree with the sinful practices, their lifestyle choices. But we also shouldn't before two people of differing sexes living together outside of marriage. Other sinful practices that are going on around us, we shouldn't be condoning those. Yes, the Bible, I know it does condemn certain sins above other sins, but you know, as Christians, all sin should offend us. We should find all sin repulsive because it is to a holy God. We should be preaching against all sin. A small minority in Northern Ireland, they only want to preach on one thing. Nothing to edify us, nothing to lift us up, nothing to encourage us or to exalt Christ. No, it's just their hobby horse. We need to pray for people. We need to show the love of Christ, despite their push against Christianity, despite the attacks upon us. Because they need to know that they're just as welcome to come into a church building like this as anybody else. How else are we going to reach them if we don't show them the love of Christ? Turn with me to Psalm 13 for a moment. Psalm 13, please. I want to read to you the opening two verses. Psalm 13 is the Psalm of David. Verse 1 says, How long wilt thou forget me, O Lord? Forever? How long wilt thou hide thy face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? How long shall mine enemy be exalted over me? Four times in these two verses you have the words, how long? How long are you going to forget about me, Lord? How long are you going to hide your face, Lord? How long shall I take counsel of my soul, Lord? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me, Lord? Because David, like Habakkuk, like so many others, he was perplexed, he was confounded over God's delay in helping. But you look back again at Habakkuk chapter 1, Read verse 13. We'll look at verse 12 for context, actually. Habakkuk chapter 1 and verse 12. Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord my God, mine holy one, we shall not die. O Lord, thou hast ordained them for judgment, and O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. And then verse 13. Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil. And canst not look on iniquity. Wherefore lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously? And holdest thy tongue when the wicked devoureth a man that is more righteous than he? Habakkuk saying, Lord, I know you're everlasting. I know you're eternal. I know you're holy in all of those things. But sin is being allowed to continue unchecked all around me. But it's verse 13 that strikes at the truth of what in Habakkuk's heard. Because he says, Why holdest thy tongue? Why have you kept silent, Lord? Again, if we not have similar thoughts with respect to our own prayer life at times, I know I have. Lord, why haven't you answered that prayer yet? Lord, I've been praying so long for that loved one and they're still not saved. Their heart hasn't been softened, Lord. What am I doing wrong? Why haven't you saved them? Why hasn't their attitude changed to the gospel? As you read Habakkuk's prayer, you can't help but be moved by it. The honesty in it. 
Because Habakkuk tells God everything that's in his heart. Again, the prophet Jeremiah, he prayed with that same type of honesty. In Jeremiah chapter 20, in verse 7, he goes as far as accusing God of deception. Jeremiah chapter 20, in verse 7, he says, O Lord, thou hast deceived me, and I was deceived. Thou art stronger than I, and hast prevailed. I am in derision daily. Everyone mocketh me. Well, Jeremiah is literally saying, I was seduced, Lord. I've let myself be taken for the fool. You've forced me to speak to these people. And for what? They won't listen to me. They don't want to hear it, Lord. Well, God certainly did not deceive Jeremiah. And whilst the language he uses is rash, he's speaking out of frustration here. And again, I think at times we behave in that same way. Maybe not going as far as making accusations, but we're wondering about God's plan. We come with our own ideas. Well, I think it should happen that way. Doesn't happen that way. And how we respond to that situation, it says a lot about our character. We've come tonight to pray. It's a prayer meeting, it's a Bible study. And yet I believe we can get so caught up in the formalities of that. Oh, I need to pray using the right language. I need to say the right things. I need to use all the theological terms. Rather than simply praying what's on our heart. Habakkuk and Jeremiah, they prayed from the heart. And whilst we are never to be rash or flippant as we approach the Lord, there needs to be that reverence in prayer. And yet reverence shouldn't hinder us or prevent us from speaking honestly to God. God knows everything about us. He knows every thought before we even think it. And he delights in honest and sincere prayer. One final thing I want to see briefly with me. And that is, that is the response to Habakkuk's prayer. The response to this man's prayer, because God does answer his prayer. But it surely wasn't the response that Habakkuk was expecting, because you read with me verses 5 and 6. Habakkuk chapter 1, verses 5 and 6. Behold ye among the heathen and regard, and wonder marvelously, for I will work a work in your days which you will not believe, though it be told you. For lo, I raise up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation which shall march through the breadth of the land to possess the dwelling places that are not theirs. He says, Behold. Look, that's what he says. Pay attention to what I'm going to do because I'm going to work a work in your day and you're not going to believe it. I'm about to do something incredible. What is he going to do here? He's going to punish the inhabitants of the land, but he's going to do it by using an even more sinful people. They're referred to as the Chaldeans here. It's the Babylonians. People described as being bitter and hasty in verse 6. They're called terrible. They're called dreadful in verse 7. They were a law unto themselves. And there's much that we can learn from such a response here. We can learn tonight that God is not indifferent. He's not indifferent because he had observed the sins of the nation. He had not been blind to their sin. And unless they repented of that sin, they were going to be punished for it. The nation had been warned for years about it because Habakkuk warns them, Jeremiah warns them, other prophets warn them, but they didn't listen. And judgment was coming to that nation. You see, while God is not indifferent, I want you to see something else. Because God is sovereign. 
He is sovereign. And to the outsider here, it might have seemed that those people were getting away with things. They were prospering in their ungodly behavior. But it wasn't so. God was sending the Chaldeans to fix things. And here we see God's sovereignty further displayed because he's in control of wicked men also. And at times we ask the question, why? And yet we must realize that God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And I say tonight, thank God for that. Because my thoughts are so impure at times. We still sin, don't we? Our ways are imperfect. Psalmist says, as for God, his way is perfect. And God doesn't always use the means or the instruments that we would expect to bring about his end. Oh, God would use the Babylonians here to bring about revival. And you look at who's in the government today, and at times you have to despair. And you wonder, don't you, well, what's happening there? I don't understand it. And yet we don't need to understand it, because God knows what he's doing. And God has those men in positions for his glory. He's in control of them too. Very quickly, one final thing we see in this response is that God will not give his glory to another. Isaiah chapter 42 and verse 8, he says, I am the Lord, and my glory will I not give to another. Because the Chaldeans, they no doubt boasted about their success, maybe boasted about how their false gods were greater than Jehovah. And yet in chapter 2, we read, God deals with the Chaldeans. They didn't give him the glory. And again, the world's no different. How often do you and I as Christians have that accusation thrown at us? Well, where's your God now? You're mocked, you're ridiculed by the ungodly. They believe they've all the power. They, they attribute all the success to themselves, all the while they're totally unaware that God is in control of all things. Everything's been done for his glory, and God can use the wicked men of this world, and he can do wonderful things with them. You take all of what I've said into account tonight, and the question that we should be asking tonight is not why, but what. What relevance does all that's happening in the world around me have with regards to the advancing of the kingdom of God? What is God teaching me through those things? Because Habakkuk certainly learnt much. He learnt he needed to trust God more than he was. Maybe we need to do the same. Things gotten to where they are today because we're no longer trusting God like we used to. Have we grown slack here? Grown comfortable because the Lord's been so good to us as a denomination? So you read through this prophecy, and revival does come to that land, but it doesn't come how Habakkuk wanted it. It comes how God intended it. And it only happens whenever Habakkuk has gotten himself to the place of total dependence upon God. And we want to see changes in our land. We want a nation to be revived. We want to see souls saved. But we need to get to the place that Habakkuk did and cry out that Joshua lived by his faith. We can pray for those things. We should pray for those things. But ultimately everything happens according to God's will. It all happens for his glory. And we ask the question at the start, well, what do we do? We don't understand. We pray. We keep doing what we have been doing. 
We keep praying, we keep trusting God, and we take everything to God and we leave it with God. We don't take it back again, we leave it with Him. And then we wait patiently, we wait expectantly for God to answer those prayers. May God write what has been said upon your hearts tonight. I trust and pray that you'll have been encouraged by it, been challenged by it. It's much encouragement in the Word of God. It's a wonderful little book. So much in it for the believer. And I trust and pray that there's been something in it for you tonight.